It's another session with the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. Starring Bruce, John, Peter, Trav, Pixie, and our ever-loving, ever-grooving Richard Tohoka. So sit back and groove with us cats as we spin another session of the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Captain Bruce R. Sheffer. This is First Officer John H. Ryer. This is Lieutenant Commander Robert Trav Pulaski. This is Admiral Richard L. Tohoka. This is Cadet Josie Pixie Mulcahy. Welcome to the continuing voyages of the Tri-Tac podcast to go boldly into somebody else's intellectual property to seek out <laughs> pretty much anything that isn't nailed down and to make it our own. Yep. <laughs> to go where so many have gone before because we really want to use your stuff. Never mind about me. Protect my ship. <laughs> exactly. Shall I come down on our party? Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This week, we are continuing our series on playing Fringeworthy and other people's campaigns or other people's intellectual property. And in this case, we are doing Star Trek. And, uh, you know, we, we might have thought that we were going to do Star Wars considering that's just about to get released. But no, no, uh, you know, I think there's uh, some of us have been trying very hard not to watch the. Uh, uh, the promos and things like that, because we want to be surprised when we see this. So, uh, yes. Star, Star Trek, on the other hand, has been out a long time, and yes, they are. You know, there are other things out there going on, but pretty much, I think we've got you know some solid material to work with that we don't have to worry about stepping on anybody's revisionism. You know, though we will be talking about the two different types of Star Trek. So, yes. Uh, okay, so uh, we are talking Fringeworthy here. So we are talking about going through a portal to another world. Now, uh, it could be a prime. Uh, it could be an alternate. Uh, in many ways, it would probably be the most helpful, considering what we're talking about here, for it to be, um, a, uh, uh, to be a, a, its own node. But I don't know if there's anything like that on the fringe pass. Uh, well, so, well, in Portals Three, there is a particular alt where it's an Iowa Starport, and in the side bar flavor text, Rich had Jack Schmidt mention Star Trek. Okay. So I, when I was planning new campaigns. I, I'm currently running a Star Trek Pathfinder campaign, and I that I and it's not fringe worthy, but I put that particular campaign 
on that particular alt, saying that the portal is right there behind the bar where Jim Kirk got beat up in the 09 movie, the Riverside Cafe. So, right. I would see that as the best play. If you were playing the revision, the J, what do they call it? The Abrams verse, that would be a decent place to put the alt there. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Okay. Let's first just talk about why, you know, why would we want to play in the Star Trek universe? They got cool toys. Why that, wouldn't you? Like what? Like what's, what's so fantastic that would be in the Star Trek universe that you wouldn't find in, an, in another um, equally high levels, you know, science fiction world? Well, first off, it's not very hard science fiction. Uh, in fact, on the most scale of hardness, it's only a two. On the what scale? On the what scale, sir? The most scale of sci- a sci-fi hardness. Can you spell that word? M-O-H-S. M-O-H-S. Okay. Yeah, it's in, TV, it's in TV tropes. You know, abandon all hope you go there. And, uh, <laughs> but it, they have a scale from one to five, they have a scale from one to six, with two being just above, you know, sci fantasy, like, you know, uh, Egg Rice Burroughs. And the, for comparison, the Martian would rate at five. The book would, would rate at 5.5. 5. Right. So we're saying here that, uh, at least you are saying, and, and they are, that the Star Trek universe uh, doesn't require any real science background in order to, to, to play and, and to create adventures. Nope, but it does mean most of its stuff doesn't work outside the node or the world. Uh, you get 18 hours, you know, before it stops working. Right. Okay. Well, give us some examples of things that don't that that are that don't wouldn't work outside the node. The warp drive, the transporters, the phasers, the tricorders, the communicators, the uh, all the all the vehicles. So I've heard what you just said there, okay, but I'm, I'm questioning some of it, okay? For example, why wouldn't the warp, warp drive work? Uh, because it's, dub- it's a, it's a technobabble dr- double, double talk drive. It doesn't have no basis in any reality. And no, it's not based on the El Cuberi or primarily misspelled. John, don't, don't throw jargon at me. We have Star Trek for that. Yeah, yeah. It's not based on, on the popular uh, warp drive that that, that a, um, a South American scientist came up with. No, it's basically, it's just a plot device. It was a plot device for the sake it never, it was never consistent. Uh, okay. All right. Let's, let's just hold on there a second, Buckaroo. Okay. Now <laughs> the last, I, I have a book right here. It's called the science of Star Trek. And they paid good money for that too. And those guys laughed all the way to the bank. <laughs> And the, and one of the ones that they talked about was the idea of using um, a warp field to, in essence, uh, compress space, so that you know you when, when you're traveling effectively under the speed of light, you're actually traveling faster than the speed of light because of you're traveling over compressed space. So that was, you know, that was the idea that they put forth for, for warp drive. And I've heard that other places, too, as a means of fat, traveling fast and light. Uh, and so why would that not work in Star Trek as the method of warp drive? Well, technically, because they ignore all the problems. that the uh, Basically, you're talking the L. Cuberi drive. Or Alcubierre warp drive. That's basically the real world equivalent. 
but it has problems. Well, all of them have problems. They don't exist. Well, in this case, this one, this actually is actually based by Miguel Alcubierre, a real, a real life theoretical physicist. Uh, the original version basically took um, as much energy as it was available in the universe to make. So that was the first problem. Well, obviously, that's not the case. Yeah, they came with a cheaper method where you actually probably could do it, but it has a problem that as you because tr- you're traveling faster in light in normal space. And what happens to all that, all those dust grains and particles of gas and everything in, in front of you? But you're not. You're not traveling faster than the speed of light. It's just, it, it's just to the outside observer you are. You're traveling, I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it's not, I don't remember the exact thing, but you're traveling pretty fast, but not that fast. Uh, no, no. Okay. Inside the war bubble, you're stationary. Inside the bubble you create, it's stationary. You're not moving. The bubble's moving and it's carrying you along, but inside you're not moving. So it basically works by, you know, playing fast and loose with, you know, relativity. You know, to you, you're, you know, the space is, 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 um, you're scrunching it up in front and pushing it out and back. Yeah. And that moves you along. Right. And the warp bubble can, and that you can achieve faster and light speeds with that. Yeah. That's the point. But unfortunately, you build a wave front up in front of you of all those little particles of dust and gas that compress and can't go anywhere. Well, why can't they go around? They can't. They get. They build up. They, they're stuck. They can't move because you're moving faster in light. They can't move out of the way fast enough because they're because they're limited by the fact that you're moving faster in light. So they're stuck. That's why you have the deflector shield. Oh, that's another bit. Of, this thing doesn't exist either. Now I I will I, I will admit okay that to me that's the real thing because the deflector shield inside of Star Trek was used for practically everything I mean it was great that and the transport the two of them together then you know that that's your your wonder your magic wand if there ever was one. oh yeah the transport is definitely magic because you don't have a receiver that's what that's why it broke all the stories when they realize oh wait so if they, if Kirk is in trouble we can just beam him back up we gotta break the transporter. Or prevent from working. So they basically, that's why the transport, I, I agree with McCoy. I would not want to go in a Star Trek transporter. It breaks down at the drop of a hat or, or something prevents it from working uh, at a drop of the hat. But it, but it always works good enough. Except that one, except that one time. We got one word to describe the science of Star Trek. Technobabble. Yeah. That's yeah. The, what the word was made for. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, again, okay. So let's let's get back to our original question, which is, what is it about the Star Trek universe that people are going to want to play in it? You know, what is it that that appeals? I mean, is is it just? I mean, I can see where the GM would like it because there's this huge body of information that they can tap into very very readily. Okay, but how? What, what about the players? What's their in, enticement? Well, I, I can do this because I'm running a Star Trek campaign and Josie's in it. All right. What? <laughs> what are you trying to say, Josie? No, I think the two of you should tell us. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, I'm running the Star Trek campaign, and one of my players, um, my fellow DJ Perky Goth, her husband Oz, is a huge fan of the Klingons. He has a, an autographed bat left by Michael Dur- So he's getting to play a Klingon in this campaign. He'll have his laptop. He'll speak Klingon in character. So for him, he gets to play this, you know, this bad <clears throat> race and, you know, 
you know, kaplock and all that and get into character like that. There are some people that like the Balkans and they're, you get to play these iconic races of this series. And because Klingon is practically its own language now to the point where you actually have a schism between how they're translating the Bible that, oh yes, yes, (laughs) this is a real thing. Um, because you have these races, yeah, what, yeah, I, as soon as I met Oz and I found out that he wanted to play a Klingon, I said, I have to run a Star Trek campaign. And he's having a blast. And we're having a blast watching him get into this character. So I think that's what it is, is that these characters, these races of this, this, this series, they've become such a part of world pop culture that, like I said, a language hasn't actually been formed. And so we just want to be a part of that because as of this taping, folks, Star Trek is 49 years old. It'll celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. So it's become where we've had now three, maybe four generations loving this show. And so, yeah, that's why we want to be in the Star Trek game is because we get to be Klingons and Vulcans and we get to deal with, you know, all these various societies and get into the mindset of these characters that we've seen on TV and film for the past 49 years. I think that's the main draw. So Trent, that's great for people who want to play those characters, but I'm from earth prime. Why would I want to go there? He's always, Oh, you're saying in game. Why would we want to go there? Well, usually nine times out of 10, you end up going to the portal and finding yourself there. Um, I would probably say, because of the high tech, because of, okay, we see how this post-scarcity society works, are there ways that we can bring that back to Earth Prime? Because remember, Earth Prime, yeah, it's Earth, but I mean, you have population problems, you've got resource problems. We're trying to find ways on other Earths to clean this up. Yeah, the, the, I think the big problem, though, with any Star Trek universe, Star Trek uh, world you'll find in the fringes, they're all storyverse places where narrative, and the plot line, is more, is more important than reality. Uh, think about it. You know, the, things happen in, in in all the stories that happen because there's a story to be told. There's a plot, and the plot d- dictates what what happens. So it's a story verse. It's a bit like, you know, it's probably more like the uh, Victorians where, you you know, it's not going to nail you down to a very specific story. But, yeah, it's it's a place where the where narrativium is a real thing, where basically the narrative is just as important as physics. You know, like I said, ships travel the speed of plot. You know, <laughs> you need to get someplace. It doesn't matter how far away it is. You get there, you get there in a commercial break. You know, <laughs> It's it, it, so yeah. It's 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 a it's a lot of stuff there. Probably is not going to work because it's written by people. Because you know, because it's written by folks who basically, you know, what I'm saying, um, who did who's, who for them the story is more important than 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 science. And uh, but but here's the reason I wouldn't want to go there as a as a person from Earth Prime. It's freaking Star Trek. I might be able to meet Captain Kirk, the real one. <laughs> Not the not the actor. I mean, real Captain Kirk, who talks like this. <laughs> so you, you're saying that to you that uh, 
the entry, the uh, appeal would be to meet and interact with these iconic characters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now there is a book out there where you can experience the the the, the full ramifications of this. Uh, it's by uh, from John Scalzi. It's called Red Shirts. Oh yeah. And and it's a very good book, and I highly recommend it to people who. Uh, want to understand what it's like to deal with a story verse, and, and I won't say more about it than that. But yeah, uh, now for me, I like the fact that because the it's it isn't a uh, high uh, hard science type universe. When you want to solve a problem, you can really jump outside the box. Okay, you can look around. And you could probably, you know, if you see a piece of equipment, you can probably tear it down and be halfway towards something that you want to do. I mean, whether you're trying to build a, a, a gravity belt or a, a presser beam or a, a robot, you know, that's, you know, semi-intelligent and semi, you know, homicidal. I mean, I'm just saying is that there's... Any pretty much the the amount of tech laying around and the amount of strange minerals and animals that behave oddly that you should be able to really let your imagination go wild and create solutions that would normally probably be a little bit you know uh, uh, hinky yeah <laughs> a little bit uh, questionable and uh, and and the GM's going to probably go with it because. Uh, first of all, is that the story wants to be resolved. So the universe itself is tr- going to be willing to help you along. And secondly, is because the the, uh, the science in the universe is, is not so difficult to work with because it is so fluid that you should be able to go past what would be normal limitations, like having to know advanced math and <laughs> And and actually just saying, well, I think I should be. There's an app for that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Or or we we can find a Vulcan to do it for us. Well, no. I mean, okay. Look look at Star Trek. Okay, they go to an alien ship, a species they've never met before. A that you know, and they just they down. Uh, and this was from the next gen. Uh, they download the computer matrix into it, and all of a sudden they can work the controls and they can read the the. The, the writings that are inside, and they can make all the cameras work, and they always see, seem to have the same you know, uh, uh, video protocols and everything else because they have software, which is the kind of software that we pretty much said was infringeworthy. We've already said that, that when they go to a- other places, most of the time, the, 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 not to wind up, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the, uh, of the laptop. Um, but the laptop that cut this that was always standard in Fringeworthy was able to connect to pretty much anything and get some kind of a decent communication protocol going, and then you'd be able to like read data files that were you know bizarre and everything else. And now, of course, since you know we, we we're granting the the language that you go through, then you know that allows you uh, to even you know read whatever that was. So. When you go to the Star Trek universe, they have the other, which you know, kind of the incursion idea, which is a universal translator. So you're you're even better off than you were before about being able to communicate with people, as long as they're willing to communicate with you and you and they have some actual means of communication. 
you know, it's, it's, I remember reading someplace. You mentioned reading. I remember someplace some made the made the proposal that by the time it gets around the next generation, reading. Maybe if you're one of those old fashioned types, but we had the computer tell me everything I need to know. Be, actually, there's a suggestion that at least the civilian population is illiterate, but it, it, it doesn't bother them because the computer ha- helps them. You know, so that may even be better because you know instead of trying to figure out this stuff out, the computer tells you what you need to know. At least the next gen. <laughs> if they were a little bit more friendly, I mean, yeah, we got Majel Barrett doing the voice, okay. <laughs> But I'm just saying is that most of the time, most people do not have devices that talk. You know, they rarely talk. So, and I and I know that one of the tropes in the future for a lot of people is your own personal assistant that's constantly nattering in your ear about things and showing you stuff and 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 maybe you know pointing at other things that are similar, you know, to to make connections. But they don't seem to do that. They seem to have a very abbreviated. Um, uh, writing though, so it may be that they've fallen back into uh, very uh, complicated pictograms rather than using writing the way we use writing. What they're using emojis and leet speak? Uh, I told you, you're not allowed to say that word. <laughs> yes, uh, might quite possibly they're using uh, leet speak. Yeah, why not? I mean. You know, why shouldn't the future be as uh, uh, information be as compressed as possible? Richard, we have heard from you. Okay, what is it about Star Trek that appeals to you as a player? It's space. It's a very, very cool space with aliens and villains and new and strange things. Something we don't have on Earth Prime. Okay. But, I mean, anything about it that's let's say, unique to Star Trek that isn't in, like, let's say, any other high-tech science fiction story? It's mostly the the feeling that there's going to be a very positive future, something we mostly don't have right now. Right. I, I agree with that. That's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Richard, is that, you know, the, uh, the universe of Star Trek is a very positive one. So you actually, when, the, when you do these stories, if you follow the tropes, if you try really hard, you're probably going to have a good outcome. It's not, you're not going to get mm-hmm. like, you know, somebody getting assassinated at the last minute and everything just going, you know, bad, you know, if something, if, if someone's in dire circumstances and everyone's working, their heart is to save them, they're probably going to get saved. So there's that positive aspect that the player's Especially new players, I think they might actually like you know that, that they not that their their results are guaranteed, but the universe tends to want to you know l- let you succeed. I mean, there is a tendency, especially in the in the next gen. While Roddenberry was still alive, there's a lot a lot of the, the a lot of the um, what's the right word the it, Starfleet personnel were supposed to be perfect. I mean, there was actually it was in, the, in the in the Bible in the in the story Bible for the series, uh, they couldn't act out of character, so to speak, unless they were possessed by an alien or something like that. Uh, that when Roddenberry passed on, the writers said, "Yeah, we're not going to worry about that anymore." And yeah, they started seeing more more human reactions from the characters at, at the, after that point. But yeah, it, it, that's the reason why in the first season, yeah, a lot of them were like, 
who put that up your butt? Uh, type characters. Yeah. Uh, Riker, if, if Riker exactly was like that, like, wait, I mean, you're playing him like a little, oh, I know what's happening because you're, you're basically playing him as a perfect first officer instead of a human first officer. Well, you know, Chakolte started off as a human first officer and then they made him a perfect first officer. So, yeah, which which to me was you know, ruined all the parts about him I really liked. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, let, OK, so let's move on uh, to we, we talk, mentioned at the beginning with Trab where he said that there is a portal that says it's to a star, um, a, a star base uh, in a, a star port. I'm sorry. In uh, Iowa. And that it was kind of seems to be this one where Kirk grew up and. You know, and that's okay. Uh, we could, you could do that. Um, I'm just wondering, maybe that the players might want to be a little bit more out in, you know, where there might be more interaction. So I was thinking that maybe the uh, they would prefer to be on a uh, a space station like Deep Space Nine, but not a hanging in space all by itself, but like on an asteroid where they could have interactions with hundreds, if not thousands, of different species. Maybe they all come to Earth uh, because it's it's the center of the Federation. I just never got that impression whenever I was watching the show that there were all kinds of aliens everywhere on Earth. It seemed pretty white-faced, you know, most of the time. Well, no, just- humanity, humanity pretty much is the defining race in Starfleet. Now, the Federation, yeah, there's like hundreds of races, but in Starfleet... I, from what I've been reading of uh, Prime Directive D20 Modern made by Amarillo Design Bureau, humanity pretty much is because it, Amarillo Design Bureau took over the production and sales of the old Prime Directive and Starfleet Battles games, the whole SF universe. Mm-hmm. They said pretty much that Starfleet is mostly a human I, I would probably say maybe 60-70% human you're not going to have like an all Vulcan ship unless it's of Vulcan's particular like planetary guard Usually, or, or unless they have, say it is an all Vulcan ship like they had in the original very, series what I'm saying is very rare Yeah. Um, I've just noticed that yeah the the, the Starfleet is—it's not like a humans-only club, no, but it is predominantly human. I guess you could call it humanocentric in a way. And just yeah, that—that's what I've been reading from the four books I have of it, which are Prime Directive D twenty Modern Federation Klingons and Romulan. In the Federation one, they say that yeah, the Starfleet is mostly human uh, manned. Okay. Now, you, Bruce, we we have said though that unfortunately, uh, the only way I can see getting into a space station or a uh, someplace outside of Earth is that it's the node. The prime world is, is Star Trek world, and then you then you can just go to a, a to, say like one of the system platforms or go to the star platforms. And, and there were several places close by to Earth that you could go to and visit that had it would definitely had Starfleet bases or at least uh, Federation bases. Oh yeah, because uh, Earth, yeah, Earth, Andor, Telar, Vulcan, 
all of them are within 40 light years. They're relatively close to Earth. So, yeah, they all of them could be within the 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 reach of the Star Hub platform. Alpha Centauri where <laughs> Zephyr Cochran went after he did the warp drive. Right. That's only four and a half light years away. Uh-huh. Right. Oh yeah, and actually if you look at the um this is because it's still I think it's still considered canon the 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 tech manual from the back in the 70s. The Starfleet tech manual uh, actually said there was actually uh alien well, I don't want to call them aliens but there were people there were people living in Alpha Centauri before we got there and they were very human looking. I can explain this based on what is in Prime Directive which as I said, all the stuff from Starfleet Bells and Prime Directive is Paramount licensed, so it has to go through you know what passes as continuity. There is a race now; they're known as either the Ancients, the Cedars, or the Preservers. About a hundred thousand years ago, they took human stock and seeded this quadrant, the Alpha Quadrant. One of them was Alpha Centauri. Now they've grown up to have a very matriarchal society. And only with them joining the Federation are the matriarchal, the hardcore matriarchal stuff starting dis- to disappear. But yeah, the fact that human-like beings were found on Alpha Centauri's planets are due to the Cedars. Oh, that's the other thing. Uh, we're talking about reasons why it's soft science. Spock. Uh, his father and his mother would have much chance of having a kid together as I would have with a piece of asparagus. <clears throat> well, yeah, because you have the whole copper and iron blood thing going. The only way it makes sense is if the, the only way it makes sense is is the forerunners, these uh, the the agents. You know that means. You know, in fact, there was a, an episode of Next Gen where they came back and said, "Oh yeah, you're all the same people. It's just minor variations through evolution, but you're all you're all interfertile with each other." And they literally were. You could, in fact, in later, later episodes, uh, there were Andor and human hybrids. There were, you know, if they look human, you can have hybrid with them. Romulan Klingons. Yeah, on on D Space Nine, Doctor Bashir was regularly taking you know, cross species couples and making it possible for them to reproduce with each other. Yeah. But I understand what I'm saying with, with the uh, Spock's uh, with, with is it Sarek. I'm trying to get his name wrong. Sarek. Yeah. Sarek. 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 Sarek is the ancient Vulcan who came up with, with the tenets of logic and Idic. No, that's Sarek. Sarek. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I know someone can be corrected. I so mean, Sarek, really guys, Sarek. does it matter? <laughs> it does, <laughs> but yes, Sarah. Yes, I mean, everything we, you know, the history and everything was. It there was no there was no laboratory in in vitro fertilization involved with him and his and, and his and his and his second wife, Amanda. Amanda, you know, and yeah, poof, out came out come little Spocky. <laughs> I don't think he was the first either. I think actually was it in the Enterprise. There actually was a. Uh, uh, a child from that a union, that one too, wasn't there? An enterprise, not I, an enterprise. So. If you want to, if you want to talk, then Star Trek Five with Cybok. Oh yes, Spock's half brother. Yeah. Oh, you gotta remember? No, this is thing you gotta remember. The animated series is canon, and it definitely implies. Yes, it is. I know it is, but that's you really push it because there's so many things that are. That 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 are crazy in that. Okay, I mean they, the they got birth. 
They, 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 yeah, they got Niven's uh, slaver stasis boxes. Yep. And the Kazinti. But the thing is, the Kazinti show up later in the, in, in, in both um, original series uh, movies and in the reboot series. They show up. Right. Oh, yeah. The Kazinti's are in prime. Yeah. The Kazinti's are in prime directive D20 modern. Yes, they are available as a race. So. Yeah. But see, I would, I would never take the, the animated series as canon. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, just well, that's, that's just me you know everyone's gonna have to choose how much they want to take yeah but yeah but the cypox actually is a good because because it sort of plays off the original the animated series where spock goes back in time on vulcan uh basically vulcan children get to choose at, at, at a certain age which way they're going to go are they going to be followers of surak or are they going to be uh you know be wild and free uh, I think there's a lot of societal pressure saying, yeah, you're going this way, kid. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then you go through um, colonar. Yeah. The the process to purge all emotion. Yeah. Right. And because, you know, they almost destroyed themselves how many times because of their right. unbridled emotions? But yes, but Cyborg Mortis said, yeah, you know, you know, bleep that stuff and went out and did his own thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's much like people who you know try to live off the land in America. Okay, they you could do it, but if everybody tried to do it, there'd be a lot of starving people. Well, that's why I said there's a lot. In fact, when you watch the when you watch the animated series that episode, there's a lot of societal peer pressure on doing the right thing. Yeah, the the the, the Vulcans are totally repressed. Okay, I mean it's it's their culture. It's I mean, literally it's a linchpin in their culture. Okay, is it, it's why I think it's so funny when they keep trying to get. Uh, uh, the, uh, in Enterprise, they keep trying to get the uh, Vulcan uh, to ping, uh, not to ping, uh, whatever, uh, to, to loosen up. And I'm like going, <laughs> everything about our culture says don't do that, okay? And you're keep trying to, to basically, you know, turn her into the bad seed of Vul- Vulcan. Well, the thing is, though, because uh, this is actually based on the uh, on Sarek, the way Mark Leonard played him, Um Basically, it's not that Vulcans suppress their emotions, they control their emotions. It's a big difference. And the reason I say this is because Sarek smiles. This is true, he does. Yeah. I bet Vulcans tell great jokes, but they decide whether or not the joke is funny first before they actually laugh. Um, I I would say that uh, Vulcan humor has to be very... You know, they, they it's, it's got to be a very specific kind of humor because I don't think they can go in the, the really wild, crazy directions that I see on most stand-up, you know, where there's just a whole lot of non-sequiturs going on. I think that maybe that might not be very palatable for a Volk. Yeah, probably like their planet, it's very dry. Oh, <laughs> nice. Uh, right, okay. So... I- I personally think that Vulcans would enjoy the TV series Big Bang Theory. Probably. Probably. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, after all, Sheldon is part halfway to being a Vulcan. <laughs> and and the other halfway to being a mad scientist. He's just he's just one la- he's just one lab accident away from it, remember? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I, I I I actually played a game where I uh, played played the Vulcan chief of security, and his name was was Lieutenant Suk, and one of his issues was he had anger management anger management issues. Oh yeah, you also anger management 
issues to be your chief of security. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, uh, Trav, I'm going to throw this back at you because this is your bailiwick. So what exactly is the tech level of the Star Trek universe? And you may have to, of course, there may have to be multiple, but depending upon which series we're talking about. It's funny that you mentioned that, Bruce, because in Prime Directive D20 Modern, um, actually, the particular D20 Modern version was done by Jonathan Thompson um, of Battle Press, Battlefield Press, and he worked for um, ADB. How in D20 Modern and Future, they go from zero to nine. Well, they throw in things about tactical warp and subspace radio, which alter the normal OGL tech level. So you would have the original series tech level with Kirk and Spock would be PL-10. But then next gen would be PL-11 and the tech level may be to make um, Dyson spheres would be considered PL-13. Now, if you know the normal tech levels for the OGL tech levels from D20 Modern and Future, PL-10 would be biotech PL-9. And PL-9 is where you get time travel. So basically, PL-10 in the normal scale would be your growing time machines. So because Star Trek has its particular type of tech, namely warp drives and... uh subspace radio, Jonathan L. Thompson had to make a totally different tech scale, and so it can go to 13 because of all these various new types of technology. Um, if I were to just dump it into the normal, it would easily be PL8 into the normal OGL 0 to 9. It would be 8. Because you have anti-grav, you have matter antimatter, you've got you you have the transporters and replicators where you're converting matter to energy back and forth regularly. Yeah, it would definitely be PL eight. Okay, and so just for comparison, uh, excluding uh, Tamellaran artifacts and Commonwealth artifacts, what's the, uh, uh, the 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 usual tech level for Fringeworthy? Oh, you mean on Earth Prime? Yeah. Uh, from what Earth I understand, Prime seems to be one of the largest, the highest tech worlds out there. Uh, Earth Prime, from what I remember in Fringeworthy D20, was PL6. So, I mean, they were, I mean, at Fringe Discovery, which in D20 was 2013, they were at high PL5. But as you get into the early campaign, they start finding things which move Earth Prime up to PL6. Now, the determinant for PL6 is the discovery of cold fusion. Once you achieve fusion technology, you have gone from PL5, the information age, what we're in now, to PL6. So Star Trek with matter-energy conversion, transporters, replicators, anti-grav, yeah, I would say PL8 in the normal scale. Which still... What was that, Rich? We have replicators now, both for food and for materials. I think that's just converting one type of 
matter into another. I don't think we are directly converting from energy to matter. No, no. You're talking like 3D printers. 3D printers, right. Yeah, but they're not replicators. They're they're printers. They're just printing, and usually it's plastic. And I've actually seen the food printers. I'd rather cook my own sandwich than the, the 3D yeah, printers. I'm yeah, not. <laughs> I understand it's a great invention. I'm not feeling eating the whole replica, the 3D printed food thing. Just not. And they eating. would. <laughs> and they'd be a bear to clean because one of the things about working with food, yeah, working with food, I mean, either you have disposable cartridges you throw away or you guys sit there with pipe cleaners and crap like that to clean those things up. And if you get one scratch, it's salmonella, baby. <laughs> That's right. And and I know I'd be giving that to the low man on the totem pole. to clean. You get to clean a 3D printer. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> What are you looking at me for, Pixie? <laughs> she gave me that look like. Well, it's, it's, it's bad enough. You have to change the head every time you change the food. Yeah, you don't want cross-contamination, well, right? Wait exactly. a second. I, I, don't, I don't see that as being true, John, because just like you have, uh, you know, like, for example, they move oil, and uh, petroleum products down a pipeline. Okay, they, they, they tend to put things that are similar together, but they basically have a certain amount that they expect to be waste in between each batch of material that are moving down the pipeline. So, you know, the other end, they know X amount, you know, is going to be good, and then they decant the rest of it off into a holding tank to be, re, uh, you know, refined again, and then they and then they get something else is coming out. So, I mean, I would think that these machines would be designed in such a way that they would be able to purge themselves of any non-desirable material uh, and before they went on to the next thing. Yes, if they were made out of stainless steel and had a, a steam clean process. But the trouble is they'll be made out of food-grade plastic with scratches at the uh, drop of a hat. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. No, it does. Uh, I've, I know fellows... be made out of ceramic, for all we know. Okay, ceramic, but still, uh, moving parts would probably be solid steel. John, John you're, you're, you're going way into the... Uh, what's that scale again? <laughs> Hey, this is number two. This is number two scale, John. <laughs> and number two scale. Speaking of that, that we know they had a galley and chefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've mentioned that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. So the Enterprise had up until it didn't go to replicators. And I'm actually looking at the article right now. And oh, I'm not going to have that argue with you again, John. Okay, but we do know that <laughs> that in the next generation, which was only you know was less than a hundred years. Uh, after uh, the original series, seventy-five years. Yeah, it was less yeah, than hundred. Isn't that what I just said? Uh, yeah, less it, than hundred. Yeah, yeah. It uh, they had the ability to form an entire glass full of piping hot tea. Uh, you know, out of basically out of a swirling mist. You know, in in wherever they did the replicator in the captain's lounge. So I'm just saying, they could at that point they could make whatever they wanted out of you know out of energy. So I mean, we might as well just. You know, it, 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 you can decide again where you want to be on that scale. You know, uh, whether you want to be all the way back to the series Enterprise, where they did have definitely did have chefs. Okay, all the way up to um, you know, I, I, I don't I don't remember what they were eating on Voyager. Uh, you know, but oh, they they were it was replicated food, but they were growing their own food too. So they actually were mixing it up because they were energy. They were on re- energy replicator rations because it took energy. That's right. Oh well, yeah, you had Neelix. You had Neelix 
who was the local guy, knowing what they could eat, what they couldn't eat. So he was kind of like the unofficial chef on board Voyager, knowing, okay, yeah, these humans will like this. They won't like this. This is good for their consumption. This will be poisonous to them. So, yeah, you kind of mixed replicated Federation-era food with local cuisine. Yeah. So. And, and that was really, you know, very nice of him, considering he was the hottest-looking guy on this planet. <laughs> you left all those chicks back, you know. No, he said so. Wow, he yeah. said so. He said, I, "I'm really, a, I'm a, I'm a very attractive, whatever he was, chipmunk." <laughs> Which I thought was a wonderful bit in the show because, yeah, you look at somebody and they've got bumps and spines and stuff like that, but uh, you know, but on their world they were studly, and you know, and and it's, and there were people of other species that would. Uh, yeah, you know, would would come to that same realization. So, in a lot, in many regards, Studley was as Studley does. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago where it was normal for for women to plaster their face in a white make a white pancake makeup made mostly from uh, uh, lead white, uh, made made from lead, salts of lead, make their skins white, and then paint paint their lips bright red with with basically look like clowns. But that was considered the height, the height of the attractiveness. So it, it changes, it changes with cultures, it changes with time. So yeah, right. But I'm just saying is that, that in, in the Star Trek universe, everybody gets to be studly who wants to be studly. Yes, <laughs> I, I think that's, I think that's a very, that's also one of those things that we see why people would want to play Star Trek because not. Not that the players themselves would be studly with each other, but the fact is, is that there's a lot of port of calls. You know, in the Star Trek universe, so you know, it's nice to it's nice to go to a bar and have somebody come up and buy you a drink because they find you attractive. I mean, just as a, I would say that as a um, a character in in role playing games after thirty five years, I can't remember a single time that I played a role playing game where somebody ever did that to me. Even if I had like an eighteen charisma in D and D parlance, you know, OGL parlance. Nobody yeah. ever came and said, man, he says, I need to buy you a drink. You're so pretty. <laughs> You've never been to the Von Bode universe then, have you? <laughs> I'm sure I haven't. No. <laughs> what I'm saying is that, you know, in Star Trek, it's kind of a given, which is kind of nice. Yeah. You know, of course, the person is telling you you're, 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 so, you're so pretty probably has green skin and maybe antennas. But, yeah, you know, give it a try. <laughs> and I should respect the, the, the studliness of that person offering me the drink. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, whether it's innately understood or whether it's something that you know I might have to check out, you know, some pictures and you know who's walk, who's doing, who's walking the catwalk, and you know, sometimes it's good not to be able to tell them apart because then they're all studly. And if you happen to notice a couple of them knocking shins together, like okay, they're having sex, just walk away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's always a good thing not to do. More than likely, they're trying to sell you Tupperware. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that too. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's an awful lot of things out there that really need to be put into an airtight container. <laughs> uh, Frankie's for one thing. Uh, no. Uh. <laughs> what is that? The Umox? Yeah. yeah. Umons is us. <laughs> well, no. Umox, where, where 
the ridges of the male Ferengi's ear, you rub him, and that's ah. like watching his own Uma. Yes, yes. Hey, at least at least in, you know the Oriental culture doesn't have a word; uh, it only has one word for the word dirt. Dirt. So they come in, oh, dirters! Hi, dirters! <laughs> ah, yes. Always have fun with that uh, universal translator. Excellent job. Yeah. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.